Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And, and as we jump into this text, uh, we'll find, we'll see later, it's, it's obviously, obviously related to what Gary was sharing with us last Sunday. Uh, I will say, our passage this morning requires something of us that we can't naturally muster up. I don't know, I look across this room and I realize you're all coming in from different places. I confess this morning that I feel like my emotional bandwidth is like this. Uh, and I can't seem to, I, there's no dial I get to play with to adjust that. Some, some days it's huge, some days it's small. I feel like my emotional bandwidth is this, and maybe there's some of you who are like that. And that presents a challenge for us, because our passage this morning really brings us to sacred ground. Uh, this is a profound passage that deserves our attention. It deserves our emotion, quite frankly. Uh, here we, we see a, a picture of Jesus that is unique and distinct from what we typically see when we look at our Savior. As we read this passage, we're going to find a Jesus who is distressed. And distressed is not an adjective that we can typically apply to him. I mean, we've seen him in grief as he stood at the tomb of Lazarus, but then very quickly he called him to walk out of the tomb, and Lazarus did. We've seen Jesus angry as he walked into the temple, and it should be a house of prayer, but they've turned it into a den of thieves. And, but, but very quickly, you know, he flipped the tables and cleaned house, and everything was back on track. But here, in this passage, we find a Jesus who is distraught. Now, so if you can picture this timeline, this is the scenes. We're, we're looking at this scene, and we see a Jesus in distress. But everything following this scene, as we move into Holy Week... As we move into our Good Friday and Easter service, we're going to find a Jesus who is unflinching, unwavering, unmovable. We're going to find a Jesus who is, he was fixed, he's moving to the cross, he's, going to, he's not going to resist the guards that come in to seize him in the garden. He's, he's going to tell Peter to put away his sword when he wants to fight back. They're going to falsely accuse Jesus, he's not going to raise up any defense. He's not going to fight against this, the mock trial, he's going to carry our cross, He's going to die our death. From, from this point forward, we're going to find a Jesus who, is, who is, has got a settled resolve. But before Jesus would fix his gaze on Calvary, and before he would step into our suffering, before the resolve of Good Friday, we find this distressed prayer of Maundy Thursday. So I, I tend to agree with commentator Leon Morris, who observes, the real battle was fought here. Here in this scene, Jesus has this one opportunity, this final opportunity to turn away from the plan. Here he has the opportunity to leave us in our sin. And he comes to his father and he agonizes in this one final battle before the cross. So look with me now to Luke 22. We're going to read from verses 39 to 46. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. And he came out, and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, here we come to sacred ground. And my, my plan for this morning as we work through the text is I want to move from the lesser to the greater. I want to make some practical observations first because I want to leave you with the profound meaning of this passage. So if, if you do that with me, we're going to begin... We're going to begin with what feels like perhaps the mundane, but I don't want to miss an opportunity. Our theme verse for this year has been, Lord, teach us to pray. And here we have this amazing opportunity to to observe Jesus praying in the most agonizing moment of his life. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't stop to learn from this example. And so that feels... It feels almost too practical for me. Originally, this was at the end of the sermon, and I thought, we can't land here. We need to land in the agony of this prayer. But I don't think we should miss this. So look with me first to the example in this prayer. I want to pull out three lessons that we learn as we look at our Savior in prayer. First, we learn in these verses that prayer is our spiritual weapon. And so here we're connecting the dots to what we talked about last week. If you remember the passage that Gary opened for us, uh, there we saw this warning that the devil is about to sift Peter. So temptation is coming, Jesus says to his disciples. You have a spiritual enemy, and I hope that it wasn't lost on you last week, so let me just press it in 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 case it was. You have a spiritual enemy. You have an enemy who wants to wreck your faith, and he wants to wreck your family, and he He is real. And Jesus is pressing it in. Now, we learned a lot of valuable lessons last week. I won't rehash that. But it's important that we keep that reality fresh in our minds, that there is a spiritual fight happening all around us. Jesus went on to tell them, and you need to prepare yourselves, therefore. Things are about to change for you. So he said, you remember what I sent you out with last time when you were with me? Well, well, the season is changing, and in this new season, you're going to need to prepare accordingly. So you grab your swords, because this battle is coming. Well, what swords is he referring to? You know, Peter, in just a moment, the the disciples in our passage next week, the guards come in, they're going to say, Jesus, is it time now to pull out the swords? And and Peter's going to swing one, and Jesus is going to say, put that away. What's the sword? What's this sword that we're called to wield? Well, Jesus elaborates on what it looks like to wield the sword of faith here. He says to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Trouble is near. The devil would have you. Temptation is knocking on your doorstep. Therefore, pray. Why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping? Pray. Martin Luther was no stranger to spiritual warfare, and he says here, this we must know, that all our safety and protection consists in prayer alone. And so before we go any further, I just want to ask you this morning, what are you trusting in? Each of us has faced temptations this week. Each of us has faced trials. That, that argument that just keeps circulating in your marriage, that temptation that just keeps comes knocking on your door, the fear, the despair that frequently washes over you, the anger that bubbles up inside of you. When you feel those all-too-familiar feelings, when temptation comes knocking, where do you turn? What is the weapon that you wield in your fight? Many of us in this room have memorized 1 Corinthians 10.13. 
Gary alluded to it last week. If you haven't, I would commend it to you. In your battle against temptation, it's a powerful verse. No temptation, I've memorized it in a different translation, but no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Many of us have memorized that verse, and it's been a great comfort for us. We hold on to that promise, but here's a question. What does it mean? What is the way of escape that Paul is referring to? How do we stand when temptation has ensnared us? Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says, this is, this is your weapon. This, this is your weapon. Watch me, Jesus says. I'll show you how you fight this fight. The devil is roaring, prowling about, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. What do we do? Listen. The thief, he runs and hides when you enter into the king's chamber. That's what we learn in scripture. The accuser buries his head and bites his tongue in the presence of the judge. Pray. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is staring down the barrel of Good Friday. He's waiting for the cup of wrath to be placed into his hand. So he bows his knee and he lowers his head and he prays. And he set this beautiful example for us to follow. Now there's a second example within this story. And it's the example of the disciples. We often resemble them more than we resemble him, don't we? Verses 45 to 46 describe this scene in the garden, and yet as I was reflecting on it, it it actually so often describes a scene that I've seen played out in my own life, and perhaps in your life too. We read, When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, interestingly, Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us why the disciples are sleeping. Everyone tells us they were sleeping, but Luke's the only one that says why. He tells us they were sleeping for sorrow. These are spiritually weary men. And rather than bringing that grief to the Lord in prayer, their grief drove them into hibernation. I wonder if that sounds familiar for some in this room. How often do we retreat in our weariness? How often do we escape to the covers? Or escape to food? Or escape to entertainment? It's been a long day. It's been a draining day. It's been a hard day. Everything has gone wrong. How often do we escape to our pet sin? How often do we allow ourselves to sleep for the sorrow that we feel in our hearts? Listen, brothers and sisters, there is a sorrow that makes prayer feel like an uphill battle. You ought to know that. You do know that experientially, but let's just put our finger on it and call it what it is. There is a despair that makes prayer hard. Perhaps you're living in that even this morning. But Jesus is teaching us here and modeling here that it's in those moments when we think that we are too weary to pray that in fact we're too weary not to pray. It's in those moments when we need to be pressing in. The devil is prowling, roaring, looking for someone to devour. And when we're weak, wow, we need all the more to wield this spiritual weapon of prayer. But it's hard, you say. I, in my heart, I'm saying, but yeah, it, you say that, but it's so hard. Well, that leads us to the second thing we learn in this example. It is hard, but listen, prayer can be hard spiritual work. 
Look again at verse 44. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus agonized in prayer. Too often, we fail to pray because we falsely assume that prayer will always and only be easy. We assume that prayer is, is, is only a time for receiving, for feeling warm feelings, for having our spiritual tank filled. And to be clear, prayer often is that way. Praise God for that. So many times we come to the Lord in prayer, and he's, it's, like, it's just refreshment. It's just, it's, it's beautiful. It's easy. But, but you need to understand that prayer is, is broader than that. Though That is part of prayer, but there's more to it. So sometimes our prayer is, is adoration and thanksgiving. Yes. We see that commended to us in Scripture. We see that modeled in Scripture. That's the prayer we pray as we walk through the woods. It's the prayer we pray after we've had a, a great night with our family. We're so grateful. Or we just had a, a great time of worship together. And it's as natural as breathing. It just flows out of us. And in those moments, prayer is input. Right? God is he's filling us. He's pouring into us. But other times, prayer is output. It's intercession. It's battle. It's focus. It's effort. Colossians 4, we find an example of this. The Apostle Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Listen. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. How has he worked hard? Struggling in prayer. Do you have a category in your brain? When you think about prayer, you know, before you came in today, if I were to ask for you to describe what prayer is and what it looks like, do you have a category for this in your brain? Can you think of a time in your life when you have worked hard and struggled in prayer for your brothers and your sisters? The disciples are weary in this passage, and their weariness drives them to sleep. Jesus is weary in this passage, and his weariness drives him to fight on his knees with sweat pouring from his brow, resembling blood, like a gash in his head. He is, he is fighting in prayer. I was talking through this sermon with Gary before I left. He was working through his, I was working through mine, and uh, he said it would probably be helpful at a time like this to explain what struggling in prayer might look like. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't even know where to begin? Does that look like I praying in uncomfortable positions? And you know, and that might sound silly, but we saw that as we look through church history, you got monks praying on, on poles out in the desert sun. It's, it's not about agonizing yourself physically. What might it look like? Here are some examples. To struggle in prayer might look like setting your alarm 30 minutes earlier. It might look like writing it into your schedule, times to pray. It might look like writing down some of the spiritual battles that you're fighting in your life, in your marriage, for your kids, for your neighbors. It might look like disciplining yourself to focus. I mean, even this morning, just think, reflect back to as our brother Ron was, was lifting up the, the prayers for the congregation. How many of us allowed our minds to wander? Don't raise your hand. How many of us, though, are thinking about, you know, what I'm going to do later today and what I'm going to, oh, and, and the kids, and then they're so cute, and it's so easy for us. Or if you're sitting in a prayer group and our minds wander, what am I going to pray about when it's, when it's my turn? 
what will I say? Or, you know, I'm, or I'm starting to think about the, the work I've got waiting for me. It, struggle in prayer. Focus. Say no. Like Take those thoughts captive and say no. I'm agreeing with my brother in prayer. We're, we're bringing this up. I'm agreeing with my sister. We're, we're going to fight this battle together. It might look like joining a prayer group. I mean, how many of us would say, well, I, I, I don't think I could join a prayer group. That seems scary. It seems hard. Yes and yes. What that is worth doing is not scary and hard. Well, there's none that fits my timeline. Then start a prayer group. Maybe that's what struggling in prayer looks like this morning. Struggling in prayer might look like opening the Bible and praying the promises of God. It might look like interceding for your friend who's in crisis. Can I tell you something? So many of our friends in this room are in crisis right now. Do you know about any of the crises that are going on? Wouldn't it be amazing if for each person right now who's in this, who's fighting a battle... And they know he's already won, but they're in it. How sweet would it be if there were 10 brothers and sisters saying, hey, I'm with you, and I'm praying with you until this is done. Like, I want you to know, when you feel like you're all by yourself, you are not. I look at my calendar. Every, every Monday morning at 7 a.m., I am praying for this, for you. How sweet would that be? That's what it looks like. Praying for the salvation of your unbelieving neighbor. Your, your, your coworker, or maybe your friend is, is evangelizing their coworker, and they say, come on, pray with me. Let's, let's lift this person up in prayer. We catch a glimpse of a church that prays like this in Acts 12, verse 12. I, I've alluded to this story in the past, and we're going to get there in the future. We'll hear lots about this. But Peter's in prison, and it's late in the night. In fact, Peter's asleep in prison. But then suddenly an angel comes to him and takes off his chains and opens the door and leads him out and brings him out onto the street. And, uh, and then Peter... He's assuming all of this is a dream, the text tells us. He thinks it's all a dream. And then he comes to and realizes, that was not a dream. And I am in the street. The text reads, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Remember, late, it's late at night. So he, he goes to this place. I wonder how surprised he was when it's where many were gathered together and were praying. Because Brother Peter's in prison. He's, he's just been taken away for preaching the gospel. And we've got a fight. We've got a battle on our hands. And so late into the night, they're assembled together and they're praying. Oh, that we would learn what it is to struggle in prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. He models it for us here. And third, and finally, we learn from this example that prayer aligns us with the will of God. Look at verse 42 where Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, there is a profound mystery in that verse that I can't even begin to unpack. There's something, I mean, so here's the second person of the Trinity. Jesus came to the earth knowing full well what the plan was. Jesus knew the cost of our redemption. He's not surprised by any of this. And, and yet we have this mysterious prayer, and, and we're going to get into the, uh, the mystery and the wonder of this passage. But, but right now, I just want to zoom in on this example that he sets for us in that clause. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus says, if there's any other way, then I want the other way. And yet not my will, but yours. Now, I have heard it said that Christians should not attach such qualifiers to their prayers. I've heard it said that this is like, it's like an, an escape clause, an excuse. It's like a, a way for you to be faithless 
but to appear faithful. I've heard it said that we ought to claim what we desire in prayer with complete assurance because God has promised to answer our prayers. And there are verses that will be attached to that argument. Verses like, for example, when Jesus promised, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. And of course, Jesus did, Jesus did say that. And we should pray with faith. But as we pray, we need to make sure that our prayers are informed not just by our favorite verse or even our favorite verse says, but by all of Scripture. And Jesus had an awful lot to teach us about prayer. He also modeled for us that as we bring our requests in faith to God, that our primary concern is that the will of God be accomplished in our lives, which is why when he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, prayer is the place where we ask for what we think is best with faith that God will respond with what he knows is best. One pastor notes, true prayer is not bringing God in line with our plans, but rather submitting our plans to the Lord's designs. Because none of us knows what is best. Hear that. We don't know what's best. Sometimes we think we know what's best. And we're taking all the wisdom that we've accumulated from our time in God's word and, and everything we know of him. We think we know what's best. We're going to ask for what we think is best, but we don't know what is best. You know, I, I, Tim Keller, I think it was, he often uses this illustration of, you know, just think about you 10 years ago. You 10 years ago had an awful lot of ideas. You 10 years ago thought that he was, or she was a really smart person. And, and you thought that you knew it was best you thought that, you know, this is, this is the trajectory. You were making lots of decisions that you were really confident in. Now think about who you are today and look back. Would you want that person making the decisions that would inform this life? Like, would you subject your will to that person? No, of course, because you've grown, because you've learned, because you're a human. You don't know everything. And the crazy thing is, guess what? Ten years from now, this version of you is going to be the one that you're going, oh, boy, what, what did he know? What did she know? always we're learning, always we're growing, and yet sometimes we forget that and we think, no, I know for certain what I need. No, you don't. And so you come to the Lord in humility. The Apostle Paul, he had this thorn in his flesh, and we don't know what it is, and I won't speculate, but it was something that caused him grief and anguish. It was something that he thought, my life would be better if this thorn was gone. And yet the text says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, heal me, and God said, no. This is for your good, Paul. As we learn to be a people of prayer, we need to have this category in our minds. As we pray for people, hurting people, we need to have this category in our minds. If Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, possessed the humility to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, then surely no one in this room is exempt. I agree wholeheartedly with one author who who observes, I will be frank to confess, if I really thought I could change the mind of God by praying, I would abstain. Because I would have to say, how can I presume with the limitations of my own mind and the corruptions of my own heart, how can I presume to interfere in the counsels of the Almighty? He's saying, if that's how it worked, 
if God was, was duty-bound to do whatever I asked him to do, I wouldn't ask him to do a thing, because what do I know? What do I know? However, that's not the truth, is it? I ask God in faith, and, and God answers my prayer, but he answers it according to his will, and he does what is right. Therefore, oh, I, I don't cease praying. I pray without ceasing. He's promised to answer the prayer of faith. And sometimes the answer to the prayer of faith is yes, and sometimes the answer to the prayer of faith is yes, but wait. And sometimes the answer to the prayer of faith is no. Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The answer to that prayer was no. There was no other way. And in that no, God opened the door of salvation wide to the whole world. Some of you have been praying a prayer for a very long time. And you've just been hearing consistently no after no after no. And you keep asking, and it's, it's no. And you're starting to wonder, does he love me? Does he care? Is, is he real? See here that every no leads to a greater yes, if you're a child of God. All things work for good. For those who love God are called according to his purpose. We learn that here in this text. Now, we're moving on now, because as I said, those are, those are practical observations. I think it's worth doing that, because you learn a lot about a person when you pray with them. You learn a lot from a person when you pray with them. And, and we'd be remiss to miss this opportunity as we pray with Jesus. But I want to move now to the heart of the text as we come to our conclusion. I want to come now to the agony of this prayer. What's happening here? And as, as we turn the page, I want to invite you to, to turn the dial with me, if you will. I find this temptation in my heart. So often we get into the Bible and, and it's just this intellectual exercise. Right? I want to understand. I want to learn some new things. And I hope that you do want to understand. I hope you want to learn lots of new things today. But we want more than that, don't we? Don't we want that to trickle down to here? Don't we want our hearts to be moved this is a passage that demands something from our hearts. Just try to visualize it if you can. I know our imaginations, we, we left them when we were nine years old, but can you grab it for a second? Just picture this scene. Here's, here's Jesus, glorious, awesome Jesus, and he is so full of dread that this that he is sweating profusely. I don't know if, the, if it was like actually red. I assume that it was just sweating so, so, it was pouring out so much. It was like he's got a gash in his head. The sweat is pouring from his brow. He's in the garden. He's pleading with God. He's there with his best friends, his disciples, and, and he's given them so much, and he's, he's been there for them every time, and he says to his friends, pray, pray, and then he turns, and they're, they're, they're sleeping. They've left him. One of them's awake, He's leading guards to the garden to betray Jesus. He's alone. And he sees what this next day is going to bring. He sees the hatred that's coming, the darkness, the agony, the suffering, the wrath, the hell of it all. He's broken. And he says, God, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, yet not my will but yours be done. The answer is no. Yet the Father sends an angel. Luke's the only one to record that detail. The Father sends an angel to comfort Jesus. As everyone else has, has failed him, God sends this angel. But picture that scene. Jesus prostrate in the garden, just weeping, sweating, 
agonizing, and an angel just draped over his shoulder, comforting him. He's preparing to go to the cross in this scene for you. Do you see yourself in that scene? Why is all this happening? Because of your sin. Because of my sin. It was my sin that held him there. He's preparing to experience hell itself for you. Soften these stony hearts. Let's engage our hearts here. Wake up, sleepy soul. See this. We're meant to be shaken by this scene. We're meant to be taken aback. The one who silences storms with a word is distressed. The one who calls dead men out of their tombs is sweating drops of blood. What's happening in this scene? Look at verse 42. If you are willing, what? Remove this cup from me. What is causing this agony? It's it's the cup. Well, then what is the cup? That's the question. That's the question in this passage. What is the cup? In the Old Testament, this language of the cup, it occurs in three different ways. So when the cup is referred to in the Old Testament, it could be a a physical cup on a table. Or it could be a cup of blessing. You know, he anointed my head with oil, my cup overflow, Psalm 23. But neither of those seems to fit this context. Neither of those would inspire dread. What's the third use of the cup in the Old Testament? It's the cup of wrath. The cup of God's wrath against sin. The cup that we find, for example, in Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Just Let's use the language of the text and try to picture this in our minds. Use this illustration. I was hoping to have a table with a bunch of cups, but that didn't work out. So just picture it. Our imaginations are going. All right. Thank you, volunteers. Let's focus. So imagine that each and every one of us here has a cup. Every person who's ever existed has a cup. And the Bible tells us that in this cup, there's, there's poured out God's wrath against our sins. You can imagine each of these cups is, is filled to the brim with God's wrath against our sin. Billions and billions of these cups are accumulated. Psalm 75 is telling us that on the day of judgment, we're all going to pick up that cup, our cup, and we're going to drink it down to the dregs. Revelation 14 gives us an idea of what that will look like when we finally have to pick up our cup. Revelation 14, verses 9 to 10. Let's read this slowly. This is a weighty text, and we should feel it. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, that language is just saying, anyone who rejects Christ and follows the way of the world, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is the cup. At the final judgment, God's holy, righteous, perfect wrath will blaze against and consume every single sin that has ever been committed on this planet. God hasn't missed a single thing. He hasn't missed a single word, a single thought, a single deed, a single injustice. He's seen every bit of it. And on that day, his wrath will 
blaze against it, and it will be accounted for once and for all. That's what it means to drink the cup. So there are billions of these cups that have accumulated, each filled to the brim with evil that warrants the wrath of God, each of them except for one. Now you imagine there's one clean cup, one empty cup, one pure cup, Jesus' cup, because Jesus never sinned, not once. Jesus lived the perfect life. He loved God perfectly. He loved others perfectly. And his cup sits empty. Well, therefore, why is Jesus dreading the cup? If he's got the only empty cup in all existence, what is there to dread? And here we find the mystery and the scandal of the gospel. God took the cups of every single one of his people and he, he poured those cups into Jesus' cup. You can imagine this, just this massive chalice now containing God's wrath against seemingly infinite sin, the sin of the world poured into one cup. Just think about the sin of this room poured into this, this one cup. Why is Jesus agonizing here in his prayer? What is this cup? It is that. In this prayer, Jesus is bracing himself to feel guilt and shame for the very first time, for the only time in his eternal existence. Jesus is preparing to feel God's holy displeasure. You ever done something wrong and you feel so racked with guilt? You feel so dirty. Jesus is about to feel God's holy displeasure against a million affairs and a billion lies. That's what's in this cup. He's preparing to feel God's hatred for the Holocaust. The slave trade. He's preparing to God to suffer God's righteous, undiluted wrath against child pornography, child abuse, abortion, all the other things that humanity has done to the least of these. And your sins in that cup, that addiction that you keep going back to, that bitterness that you refuse to let go of, the careless words you've inflicted on others, every single thing that you've ever done that has left you reeling with a guilty conscience. Imagine feeling all of that in one moment. Multiply it by a billion. That's what's in the cup. We can't grasp this. We can't. There's no category. I've used some of the the more grotesque sins that I could picture because I'm trying to just, I'm desperately flailing at trying to get us to feel something of what we ought to feel when we consider this. Why is he pouring these drops of blood? Why is he agonizing? Because that's in his cup. He knows he's going to feel that. We think of Good Friday, and we're going to walk through the text moving forward, and we're going to see all of the physical abuse, and we're going to look at the horrors of what they did to Jesus' physical body. But realize that that is not what Jesus is praying about here. Jesus is not dreading here the pain of hanging on a cross. What is he dreading? He is dreading that unimaginable, unfathomable pain of bearing the sin of the world. When Jesus drank the cup, he bore in his humanity a guilt and a shame and a wrath and an abandonment that we cannot grasp. He became sin for our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It was not hyperbole when Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? As we prepare our hearts for Good Friday, and that's what we're doing. I mentioned my emotional bandwidth feels like this. I'm preparing my heart. We're preparing our hearts right now to worship appropriately as we come and we behold Good Friday and Easter Sunday. As we come, let us remember that the the pain, the, the gore, the dread of it all, physical peace was just the tip of the iceberg. What Jesus bore for us that day defies comprehension. He drank the cup. He endured the spiritual pain. He drank it to the dregs for us. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper on Good Friday and we come to the table again, let's remember that we are able to drink that cup because Jesus drank this cup for us. Now, some of you walked in this morning and you're, you're still carrying the weight of your sin and you're still living in the guilt and the shame. You've, you've never made peace with God. You've spent a life trying to do enough, be enough, trying to live up to some standard. You come in today, and I talked about the cups being poured into Jesus' cup, and yet your cup still sits full because you've not handed it over to him. And there is a, a deep guilt that you feel, and you try to suppress it, God's word tells us in Romans 1 that we suppress the truth, right? We try to fight that back. But every once in a while, it just, it, it cracks through and we, we feel those pangs. We know that something is wrong. We know that we're not ready. And we sense that the day of reckoning is coming. There's a way of escape from the wrath to come. There's mercy for sinners. There's grace for rebels. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because you know what happened after this prayer? As we're considering this, this moment, this final battle before the cross. You know what happened after he prayed and he said, I don't want to bear it. I don't, I, I don't want to take it. Is there any other way rather than me taking all of this upon myself? The father said, no. What did Jesus do? He got up. He got up. He followed the guards. He went to his trial. He was silent as he stood accused. He picked up your cross. He bore your shame. He drank your cup. He endured God's wrath against your sin. He paid your debt. He died your death. And then he marched out of that tomb three days later. And he said, come to me and live. That's what he's done for us. And that is available to every one of us. And, it, and you don't have to earn it. That's the beauty of it. He, he drank the cup that, so that it's gone. It, you know how hard it is to dump the cup in? It, Jesus says to me, bring the cup. Bring it to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. This morning, Jesus is inviting you to give him your cup. Perhaps you're here and you've been spurning his grace for too long. You've allowed yourself to dangle over the pit of hell, bearing all of the weight of your sin. You've allowed yourself to live that way for too long. You would die when he's purchased life for you. Why? Who, who are you trying to impress? What are you trying to prove? None of us deserves this grace. You think, well, I don't know. You don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done. Jesus knows all of what you've done. And he bore that cross willingly. 
great Puritan preacher once wrote, and I'll conclude here. This will be the hell of hell when men shall think that they love their sins more than their souls. When they shall think what love and mercy has been almost enforced upon them and yet they would perish. Then they shall acknowledge Christ to be without any blame. Themselves without any excuse. How do I hand that cup over to Jesus? How do I, how do I have this clean cup? How, do I, how can I be ready for that judgment day? Confess your sin. Confess your sin. I am a sinner and I need a savior. I can't do it. I'm not ready. Here's what I've done. Confess your sin and then believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has paid the price for you. Believe that Jesus Christ took all of that sin in his body on the cross and he paid for it and then he declared, it is finished. Repent and believe and be saved and be done with it forever. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions. I don't deserve it, you say. No, you don't. None of us do. That's the beauty of it. It's the wonder of it. It's what Jesus purchased for us. It's what he was preparing for as he prayed in his agony. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to sacred ground. We come to weighty matters. And uh, Lord, I feel that in my soul. And uh, perhaps there are some who are just feeling like they, they need to come up for air. Before we do, I pray that you'd press us in just a little bit deeper. We need to see this. We need to understand. God, for some of us, perhaps the gospel has grown cold. We sing lifelessly. We live joylessly because we've, we've lost sight of the wonder of what you've done. None of us, none of us had salvation purchased at a cheap cost. Every single one of us is here at the, at the most valuable price. Father, you sent your son. Lord Jesus, you went to the cross willingly for us. You bore our sin and our shame willingly. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to never lose sight of that. Help us to hold on to that with faith when the enemy tries to convince us that we're still guilty, when he tries to get us to pick back up all the burden that you've taken from us. God, I pray that we would lay it down. Lord Jesus, you've paid for it. Thank you. Help us to live appropriately. And for those who are carrying their heavy burdens still this morning, in Jesus' name, take out this heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh today, I pray. God, I pray that today you would apply the cleansing blood of your son, Jesus Christ, to everyone in this room. Lord, maybe some people walked in today thinking they were saved, thinking they were in right relationship with you, but they have not yet dealt honestly with their sin. They have not yet honestly come to the cross and said, I need that. Let today be a day of salvation, I pray. God, so help all of us. There's not a single one of us here who doesn't need to see the gospel afresh and be reminded afresh. Lord, so we sit in the weight of it and we ask that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, unstop our ears, that we would know, that we would see, that we would believe, that we would live. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?